our topic for today will be the two cooked foods from dinner to symbolism. So we're talking about the Zeroa and the Beitza of the Seder plate and to examine what purpose they originally served and what purpose they serve now. If I were to ask you, what's the symbolic significance of those two foods, what would you tell me? No, what's the Zeroa, what's the Beitza? No answers. Okay, so conventional wisdom is that these are representative of the Paschal Lamb, the Korban Pesach, and the Korban Chagiga, and that they have religious value as sort of replacements for what once was in Temple times. However, we're going to see that that wasn't always true. The idea that we're going to ha- have a replacement for the Korban Pesach in the post-Temple, the modern Seder, uh, originally found expression in having a goat prepared in the, in the manner similar to the Koban Pesach, but the Chazal didn't like that. Some of the sages thought it was a good idea. Some of the sages thought it was a bad idea because people confused that with the real Korban, uh, and that, that kind of confusion is religiously dangerous. Is that the, the same reason one, why we dropped the question of the fifth question? Of the, of the tzli, of the roasted meat, yeah. So uh, the, the other thing is the, the afikoman. The notion that the afikoman is a remembrance of the Paschal Lamb is a very late invention that was not around until about a thousand years ago. And originally the, 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 the basis for the afikoman was actually a mistake in understanding a passage in the Talmud. Um, but that's not for tonight. The point is there are various ways in which over the centuries we have claimed a, a successor, a replacement for the Koban Pesach, and nowadays people think of it as Roa in that way. But let's take a look at what really happened. So the Mishnah lists a series of foodstuffs brought before the leader of the Seder. So it's a Mishnah Psachim, chapter 10, Mishnah 3. Matzah, Maror, Charoset, Ushnei Tavshilin, two cooked foods. That's what's brought before the leader of the Seder. However, the, all the reliable manuscripts of the Mishnah do not contain the words Shnei Tavshilim, two cooked foods. Later copyists interpolated that phrase based upon information found in the Yerushalmi and in the Bavli. What do we find in the Yerushalmi? There's a Brisa that says that Begvulin in the provinces, they needed two cooked foods, one in remembrance of the, of the Korban Pesach and one in remembrance of the Chagiga. And the Bavli, Rabbi Yossi, fourth generation Tana, is credited to as the author of a list of mandatory food, Seder foods, which includes Shnei Tavshilin. So the original version of the Mishnah did not have it listed, but there appears Shnei Tavshilin, the Bavli, and the Rishami. Therefore, the, the, uh, the copyists put it in. Now, the evidence suggests that the cooked foods originally did not have a ceremonial character. They functioned rather as mundane menu items. They were dinner. They replaced the sacrificial meats, which previously had been in temple days, the dinner. So if in, in, in temple times you ate the meat of the carbon to fill your belly on the night of the Seder, then post-temple times you ate other foods. These shetavshilim were the other foods. A holiday meal was considered deficient unless it featured a minimum of two cooked foods. Where do we find this in, in the Gemara? So there's a machlokis in Beitza about how many food items you need for Eruv Tavshilin. So the Beis Shammai says you need two cooked food items. Basil says you need one cooked food item. Because for the plebeian Hillelites, one cooked food was a, was a dinner. For the, for the patrician Shammai, it's two cooked foods was a dinner. 
However, that's an ordinary meal. A festival meal, you got to show you're putting the extra effort in. You're going to want to enjoy yourself. So even for the plebeians, two cooked foods were necessary. And that's why we find the Seder. And for example, how many foods are in Shalach Manas on Purim? Two. Why? Purim feast. Surah's Purim. So poor man's meal is one, one food. Rich man's meal is two foods. But even a poor man's food meal on a holiday is two foods. Okay. Now we find other proof texts from the Gemara that the Shnei Tavshilim were originally just dinner and not symbolic uh, and religiously important. Where do we find this? So the Gemara Psach in 116b. Rava said the following. We lift up the matzah, magbiyanes matzah, and we lift up the bitter herbs. By the way, when do we do that? When do we do that? Matzah zu, maror zu, with this matzah, this maror. Okay, so we but we do not lift up the meat because if we were to lift up the meat, it would look like we're eating sanctified meat outside of Jerusalem. So Rava says, we'll lift up the matzah, we'll lift up the maror, but we're not going to lift up the meat because we don't want to give a false impression of kachim bachutz. So there's an inherent flaw in Rava's statement. What's the inherent flaw? Saying that the meat need not be lifted up implies that voluntarily I could do so. It's not required, but if I wanted to, I could. Yet the concluding comment is, you're not allowed to, because if you were to do it, you'd give a false impression about Kachim Bachutz, and we don't, want to, we don't want people to have that. So in order to make sense of what Rava said, it's necessary to view the last line as not having been said by Rava, but rather as having been included by the Savorayim, the redactors of the Talmud, appending an extra little piece of information to Rava's statement. That in Rava's generation, the matzah and the bitter herbs were ceremonial foods, okay? And they were lifted up in conjunction with the liturgical explanation for why we eat this or why we eat that. But the meat was not a ceremonial food. It was just dinner. And therefore, lifting it up would have no consequence. You don't need to do it, nor is there a problem doing it. It's neither here nor there. It's It's just dinner. Then several centuries later, after the meat took on a symbolic value as a remembrance of the Korban Pesach, there was a halachic danger in lifting it up. And so the glossators of the Talmud added their warning to Rava's statement. So Rava didn't say it, but the Savarayim said it because in their time it, it, was, it was a concern. In Rava's time it was no concern whatsoever. So we see then that between Rava's generation and the era of the Savarayim, the Shnei Tavshilim take on a religious value. What was the concern? The concern is that if people really think this is the Kaban Pesach or the Kaban Chagiga, and you lift it up or you point to it in the context of saying uh, uh, um, Pesach Zu, then people will actually believe it's a Korban. And eating a Korban outside of Yerushalayim is a big no-no. Kachim Bachutz. Big, big no-no. Don't they have that meat in Rome? What's it got? Todos? Uh... Okay, so Thaddeus of Rome, Todos Ish Romi, Hinegas Bnei Romi, Lechol Pesach. So he told the people to have Gedim Akulas, the helmeted goat. And the Chazal didn't like it. Now, Rabbi Gamliel did like it, and Neretz Yisroel, he did the same thing. But he was sort of pushed aside eventually, and his view was rejected in favor of the view that says roasted meat is bad, not just Gedim Akulos, but any roasted meat is bad. Okay. 
Wait, but Rabbi, isn't the afikomen a substitute for the carbon pesach? So I, I in a different shear, will could explain to you that afikomen as a substitute for the carbon pesach is a very late concept from the days of the rishonim, and that in the days of the amoraim there may not have even been matzah at the end of the seder. It's only in the end of the Talmudic period, in the era of the Savoraim, that a mistaken interpretation of a previous passage in the Talmud led people to conclude that you have to eat matzah at the end of the meal. Because if you look in this Manatanoim, no such thing exists. There is no such thing as a matzah as afikomen. Afikomen is a sin. Aim of Tanakh afikomen. Afikomen is a, a Greco-Roman debauchery. Later, because of some miscommunication, Afikomen became a food item called matzah. Yeah, it's, it's, in, it's in the Mishnah in Pesachim, uh, 119 bet. Okay, it's right. It's in the Mishnah in Pesachim, but you're not allowed to do Afikomen. Afikomen is a sin. You're not allowed to do it. So how did a sin become matzah and a religious obligation? A thousand years of sort of things getting twisted. All right. Now, Rav Shemibar Ashi said the following. Matzah is brought before all the Seder participants. Bitter herbs are brought before all the Seder participants. Charoset is brought before all the Seder participants. But we remove the table only in front of the master of ceremonies, the balabayas. So everybody gets their ceremonial food items, their own little kara, their Seder plate. But when we do the lifting up, we only do it in front of the balabayas. So the author of this statement mentions all the food items that have religious significance. Matzah, Moror and Charosis. What did he not list? Shnei Tavshilim. Why did he not list it? Because in his own time, the Shnei Tavshilim were mundane dinner foods and not invested with religious significance. Okay. Now, several Amorayim proposed that particular foods be served as the two cooked dishes. So Rav Huna suggested beets and rice. Beets and rice, the Ashkenazim would go apoplectic. All right. So, but he was having rice on Pesach. Fine. Now, Rava would use beets and rice in order to honor Rav Huna, meaning Rav Huna said you could use beets and rice, even though those are low level food items. They're not fleshic. They're not really sophisticated. They're not expensive. Beets and rice. But because his Rebbe said it was okay, he did it also just to prove that his Rebbe is right. Yeah, but wasn't this all before kidney out? This huh? is all before kidney out. Before kidneys, yes, before before kidneys. No, no, but not to be on a tangent, but if he had beets and rice, how can we introduce that as a problem later? When it's so explicit that it's not a problem. The answer is because the problem of rice was arguably not about the rice per se, but about what might be intermingled with rice. So even the Ashkenazi Rishonim who prefer, who, who, who uh, instituted the Kitneous customs would have acknowledged that rice proper is not usher. But what's, what, what, what we're skirting, we're trying to avoid is something that truly is usher. Okay. Or so, was usher. Or no. Or, 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 I, the law doesn't change. Whatever, whatever they thought was mingled with the rice, whether there was some kind of grain, be, you know, wheat, barley. I mean, we don't, we don't suffer that problem today. Oh, okay. Understood, understood. Now, Chizkiah used fish and uh, uh, egg batter. He would use fish coated with egg batter as his two cooked foods. Rav Yosef said that the two, two kinds of meats are necessary. 
Okay. Because, Isn't that only one food though? Because you're combining the two. Ah, good question. So the so the egg ba- uh, coated with uh, uh, the fish coated with egg batter. It's a machlokis uh, in in the in the Mishnah between the Shammai and Hillel. But whether or not that counts as one food or two foods, and whether it's uh, uh, fish coated with egg batter is sufficient for an erev tabshilin. So. In his view, the egg is separate from the fish. It's, two, it's considered two foods, even though you might have thought it's really one. So okay. ketchup would be a second food, would be a vegetable. I guess. Ketchup is a fruit. Okay. So uh, now, Rav Yosef required two kinds of meat, as a zecher, lepesach, and chagiga. So he's the one who gives it symbolic religious value. Ravina said that even a bone and the broth of the soup are enough. Despite the fact that the soup is a, is a liquid, really, and the bone has no meat on it. So he's being very makeable that, that the, the broth with the bone is good enough. Now, Rav Huna and Rav Chizkia clearly did not regard specific or a narrow group of foods as being invested with religious symbolism. Rav Huna issued a lenient ruling stating that any foodstuff of one's preference, even as simple as beets and rice, is good enough at the Seder. Chizkia chose the egg-battered fish, to hark back to the Machlokas Shammai and Hillel Baraneiruv. And for those struggling to afford a lavish meal, something that appears to be one food can in fact count as two. So if you're a real pauper, you're an evyon, you're relying upon the tamchui for your seder supplies, you're a fish covered in reg batter, that's going to get the job done. Now, just as... Moment, just remind myself, the two are, are, are remnants to the two korbanot. That's the idea? That is what Rav Yosef says in the Gemara, but that nobody else in the Gemara says, but that we in subsequent generations came to take for granted. So as late as the 10th century, the cooked foods of Pesach were viewed as non-symbolic, meaning not for the Pesach and the Chagiga. Rav Sadiqon said the following, one puts aside on the night of the 15th of Nisan two, three, or four foods, beets, rice, something salty, and eggs. At mealtime, they ate these foods until satiety, until they were al-hasova. So Rav Sadia understood the two foods to be nothing more than the minimum requirement for culinary diversity at the Seder. You have to have some variety of foods. Two is the minimum. Three is better. Four is even better. Make them tasty. Whatever you can do, have a nice feast. Why do the uh, mushroom bitter herbs qualify as the two foods, although it has... No, no, they food. definitely don't. Those, we're talking about tavshilin. Matzah oh. is not cooked. Matzah is baked. And maror is not cooked. It's raw. Okay? So, the Rav Sadia's point here is that we're eating these tavshilin. It's, it's, it's the, what fills our stomach. And the more the merrier. Two is the bare minimum. So, Rav Yosef's ruling that it's a symbolic foods for the Pesach and Chagiga, is identical to the Brisa found in the Yerushalmi. But recent scholars have asserted that the Brisa does not actually reflect Tanaitic era thinking, but instead represents a later stage in the development of Seder night symbolism. The Brisa also might not have appeared in some ancient manuscripts of the Talmud. And how do we know this? Because we can look in the Gaonic literature and see that it's missing. In the Gaonic times the two cooked foods came to be seen as symbols. However, Rav Shriragon proposed that the two foods correspond to Moshe and Aaron as the two emissaries of God in carrying out the Exodus. Alternatively, the meat, fish, and eggs correspond to Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam, or 
the three foods correspond to Israel's diet at the end of days, in the Achris Hayamim, the Leviathan, the Ziz Sadai, and the Shor Habar, the wild ox. So that's wild stuff. Had, had Rav Shri Ragon seen the line in the, in, the, in, the, in the Talmud about the two foods symbolizing the Pesach and the Chagiga, it's highly doubtful that he would have ignored that line and instead focused on far-fetched alternatives like the Shor Habar and Aziz Sadai. So I think that the, the, Rav Shrira never saw this line in the, in the Bavli because it didn't exist. It was thrown in later to correspond to you know, uh, more, more recent thinking. Okay. Now, let's get to some of what the Rishonim had to say. The, Ramb- the Rambam ruled according to Rav Yosef that the two foods are required to Seder in memory of the Pesach and in memory of the Chagiga. Yet the custom developed to use a shank bone and an egg. In other words, you lost your, your wiggle room about what you could, you could eat. The, the Gemara gave you a lot of different options. You know, there were essentially no rules governing what it was, as long as it was cooked foods. And yes, if you want to say that it has symbolism, fine, you could say it has symbolism. But what ended up happening was the Zroa and the, and the Beitza. The shank... So, was, so the Seder plate would be a late innovation, in other words. The Seder plate, as we see it now, is a fairly late innovation. The Seder plate, as something which includes all the required foods of the Seder goes back already to the Mishnah. The Mishnah talks about and what did they bring in front of him? A, a, a tray, a display uh, case of all the food items. So there was a Kara in ancient times. The question is, what were the little buckets on the on the Kara? Not necessarily what we have now. Okay, so the shank bone was preferred because of its extra layer of symbolic meaning. Known as the Zeroa, the shank bone reminds us of Uvizroa Nituya, the outstretched arm of God when he uh, orchestrates the exes. The egg was seen as a symbolic item of mourning over the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. The Kolbo offers that interpretation. So the notion of the egg as a mourner's food, as a food of Avelus, and we're in a post-Temple era, a Hurban era, you know, it makes a little sense. So the Zroa for the Pesach, because of the Zroa Natuya, the Beitza for the Chagiga, because of the Machal Avelus. Fine. Now, the evolution of the two cooked foods from dinner to symbolism led to an interesting halachic question. What happens when Pesach falls out on a Saturday night? No Chagiga sacrifice was eaten at the Seder, as the slaughter of the Chagiga was not Doche Shabbos. It didn't override the Sabbath. The slaughter of the Paschal lamb did override the Shabbos, but only the Paschal, not the Chagiga. So on a Saturday night Seder, should we not have a Beitza? Should there be only one cooked food? What do you say? Give me a, give me a, a logical reason why there should be no beitzer. Give me a logical reason why there should be a beitzer in that scenario. Don't all mute yourselves. I want to hear somebody. Beitzim. Yeah, Rab Jerry. You said beitzim. So what's the logic on a Saturday night Seder of oh. yes having the beta or no having the beta? When you would have prepared it. I mean it's it's the uh, like a like a no lud thing or uh what are these little how would you have made it on Shabbat? Okay, so that's that's a question that, that we can answer by saying you made it on Friday or you made it on Saturday night. You could we could skirt that issue. Okay, so the logic mm-hmm. in favor of 
ha- not having the Beitzah is if this food item really is Lezecher Chagiga and there was no Chagiga, then in keeping with what would have been in Temple days, so delete it from this particular ceremony of the post-Temple era. The problem with that is it takes the symbolism too far and gives you the impression in other years that it really is the Chagiga or that the, the Zeroa really is the Pesach when it's not. And we have to make sure people don't get an erroneous impression that what is symbolic is actually the real thing. However, uh, there are other, there's another factor about why you should still have the Beitzah on that Saturday night Seder. Remember, what was the original rule? Shnei Tavshilim. Why? Because a festival meal requires two cooked foods. To delete one of the foods just because you turn the Shnei Tavshilim into a symbolic uh, matter is, is, is turning the thing on its head. The real din was eat two foods at the Seder because it's a Yontif meal, a night of liberation. To reduce it from two to one just because you invested it with later symbolism, you're, it's your own fault. So why do that to yourself? Why make a blunder on a blunder? Okay, now, uh, okay, as long as the two cooked foods were perceived as menu items, there was no concern that their manner of uh, about their manner of preparation. Rav Huna had beets and rice. Probably they were boiled. Chizkiah had egg-battered fish, was probably fried. Rav Yosef offered no indication about how his meats were prepared. Rav Huna's broth was boiled. So how to prepare the food was a matter of personal discretion. I'll do whatever I like, whatever strikes my fancy, and I enjoy the taste. However, once the two foods became symbols of particular sacrifices, it logically followed that the sages would, would suggest preparing them in the manner of the ancient sacrifices. And now your discretion would be lost. You'd have to do what was done in, in ancient times. So, Rabbi Nechananel, following the riff, uh, um, followed by the riff, ruled that one should roast the zroa in memory of the Paschal lamb, which was Sliesh, and one should boil the chagiga because the chagiga was boiled. Boil the egg because the chagiga was boiled. However, the Ramah notes that Ashkenazic custom of roasting the shankbone and boiling the egg may be the case, but in Krakow, his town, even the egg was roasted. So the, the, although logic would dictate that if we're following the symbolism to its conclusion and we should boil the egg, still they roasted the egg in his town. Goes to show you they were not following things to the logical conclusion. Okay. Now, Shlomo Luria commented on what he thought was a bizarre and wrong practice among Ashkenazi Jews. He said it's a minhagzar neged ha-talmud. Minhagzar neged ha-talmud. Because people believe it's an absolute requirement to have a shank bone at the Seder. They intentionally roast the shank bone so that nobody will eat it in compliance to the Ashkenazi practice of not eating roasted meat at the Seder. In other words... You're not allowed to have roasted meat because roasted meat is like the Pesach, and we can't confuse ourselves with the Pesach, so therefore we don't eat roasted meat. And the Zeroa was Zechel Pesach, so we'll badafka roasted, then we can't eat it. Okay, well, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is uh, the food items originally constituted the meal. They were then transformed into ceremonial items that had to go uneaten. It's bizarre. This was supposed to be what fills your belly. And now because of the manner in which you choose to prepare it to conform with a certain custom, with a certain symbolism, I can't eat it. It's all backward. So what did Mahashal suggest? He advocated reverting back to the practice of eating the two cooked foods. 
Whatever's on the Seder plate, eat it. Eat it. Don't let it sit there. Okay. Now, commentators on the Shulchan Aruch called attention to a further problem if the ceremonial foods remain uneaten. Cooking is allowed on Yontif. But why is cooking allowed on Yontif? It's because it says in the Torah, So lachem, for you guys, for the Jews. If the shank bone and the egg remain untouched, it becomes necessary to prepare them on the eve of the holiday, not on the holiday proper. If you're not going to eat it, and it's not really lachem, it's just for, for, for beautifying the Seder plate, then you cannot cook it on Yantif. You'd have to cook it before Yantif. What happens if you forgot to cook it before Yantif? It becomes absolutely necessary halachically to eat the shank bone and the egg at some point the next day. It also troubled the later halachists that people would throw the shank bone in the garbage. This was seen as disgracing a mitzvah object, a bizuin mitzvah. Yet the notion that discarding the shank bone is an offense against religion only exists because the two foods themselves were transformed into religious historical symbols. Had it just been dinner, you'd have baltashchis maybe, or you'd feel guilty about throwing out a food item that was still edible. But it wouldn't be a bizuin mitzvah because it wouldn't be a mitzvah. No different than throwing out leftovers from Friday night dinner. Okay, so the Paschal Lamb was an annual rite by which one reaffirmed membership in the national religion of the Jewish people. The modern Seder, widely observed by Jews of all levels of religious commitment and intensity, serves a similar purpose. When we gather to celebrate our freedom, freedom, we observe age-old customs passed down to us from our forefathers. And a fuller appreciation of the history of these practices, we can better appreciate our cultural heritage and transmit love of that heritage to the next generation. So I wrote this essay 10 years ago. It was a long, long essay in which I went through all the efforts to replace the Koban Pesach in the post-Temple era. I began with the Gedima Kulas, the helmeted goat of Thaddeus of Rome and Rav Gamliel, and then shifted to the Afikomen and shifted to the Shnei Tavshilin. So what's the broad picture here? Well, there was a desire, certainly a desire, on the part of the religious authorities of every generation, and certainly in the immediate post-Temple era, that the Pesach not be forgotten. Since that was the central piece of the Temple era Seder, the Paschal Lamb could not be forgotten. The only problem is doing something which is too clo- that too closely resembles the Paschal Lamb, either physically in its visual form or in our sort of obsession with its minutiae, gives people a bad impression of Kachim Bachutz. So you have to strike some kind of a delicate balance between wanting to have a Zecher and not wanting to have a problem of Bachutz. So as it worked out historically, the Gedim Kulas, which was popular in Eretz Yisrael for a long time, and in fact there are brachos found in the Cairo Geniza of Lechotzli, uh, uh, the, the people thought it was a religious obligation to, in the post-Temple era have roasted meat on the night of the Seder. We Ashkenazim say it's a big sin. But in Eretz Yisrael, in the first millennium, it was considered virtuous, meritorious. There are brachos over it. So that eventually died out. Fine. How did the, the Zechel Pesach emerge? It emerged indirectly. One was the Afikomen, which came by way of a Talmudic misunderstanding, but hundreds of years later, where there's no problem of Kachim Bachutz, nobody's going to confuse a piece of matzah with the real Paschal lamb. And so it was benign, it was innocuous, 
and thus viable in the long run as a Zecher Pesach. And the other was the Shnei Tavshilin, which were going to have to exist anyway as dinner, and were eaten as dinner, but over time could be invested with symbolism of Chagiga and Pesach, and no harm, no foul. Especially if, especially if uh, they're not roasted meat. Then for sure, nobody's going to think this is the actual Paschal lamb. If it is roasted meat, then you have a problem, but you resolve that problem by being a, a Fabrenta Ashkenazi and not eating it. Okay, so that uh, is the, the long story, in shortened version, of how we have Ozech in the in the modern Seder. The Zech I would say, was never as important uh, in, in the first millennium as it would be in the second millennium of the Common Era. Why? Because the Chagiga itself was not really required. Remember, the, what, what are, are the sacrificial obligations of an Ola Laregel? What does an Ola Laregel have to bring? Two Korbanos. An, an olas re'iya, a burnt offering, and a shalmei chagiga, a, a, a peace offering for the holiday. The shalmei chagiga were brought on the day of Yontif, or on the days of Cholamoid. The shalmei chagiga were not brought Erev Pesach and Yudalad. The Yudalad chagiga was a, is called in Talmudic literature chagigas Yudalad. However, there's a strong case to be made that as a historical matter, it never existed, ever. Okay, it was an inv- it was invented by Chazal after the temple was destroyed because there's absolutely no evidence in Josephus or the other writings or in the Torah that there's such a thing as a, as a Chagigas Yedalad. Why did Chazal come up with the idea of a Chagigas Yedalad? Because in their view, the Pesach had to be Nachal Alasova, eaten while almost full. Well, what made you full? Some other meat. What meat was that? Well, they said it was a sacrificial meat of Chagigas Yedalad. So therefore, in, in the modern times, or rather in medieval times, and, and then in modern times, we felt this com- compelled to have a zecher to a chagigas yodalim. It might be that we're having a zecher to something which was a, fa- a phantom, uh, that, that never actually was. Um, but okay, fine. Uh, that, that's, that, that, that's okay, because, uh, yeah, Bruce. There was a time, I think, when the Persians were in control here from 614 to 628. And there were other periods of time. Do we know if the Pasach Korban, which doesn't require Bedimiktish, was ever brought? I would assume the answer to that is yes. I would assume the answer that the Pesach was brought in the post-70 era up through Bar Kokhba when it was feasible. There is anecdotal evidence and circumstantial evidence in Chazal and elsewhere that there were Korbanos brought in that two-generational period. Most likely, if there was anything being brought, it wasn't the Tamid Shel Shachar Ben Arabayim. It was Pesach. Pesach. Okay, questions. Any questions? So you think it might happen again? Could ha- Listen, if the police didn't intervene, it could happen again. Yeah. They're well, even they're asking, for Ar- they're asking for Arabs to volunteer to carry the, the sheep up. There's billboards for that now. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. All right. We'll see what happens. All right, gentlemen. On that note, a chag kosher v'sameach. You too. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.